Well, I, I think it was probably when I became a patient myself. Um, I had gone from educating the healthcare providers of tomorrow about communication skills, about advanced care planning. And then when I was the person lying in the bed and I had to ask questions about treatments, um, about you know my own potential end of life, I got shot down. That was Dr. Kathy Cortez Miller, Associate Professor in the Department of Social Work at Lakehead University. We chat about her book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You, and about her latest project, a podcast called Disrupting Death, which focuses on Canadians sharing their experiences with medical assistance in dying or MAID. It's a controversial topic, but she does not shy away from talking about it with us. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Kathy, we are so excited to welcome you to our podcast. It's been a long time coming. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. You have so much research in many diverse areas. So we're going to do a, a smorgasbord of hot topics. But one of the things that I wanted to dive into first, if that's okay, is you have a new project. It's a podcast about MAID. And so we'd yeah. love to tell the listeners about it and where you're at in it and what you've learned so far. So we are just starting out. Our podcast is called Disrupting Death, and it's linked to a Social Science and Humanities Research Council grant and insight grant that uh, our team has received. And it extends some work that we did in the province of Ontario, um, speaking with people who'd accompanied someone who used MAID at the end of their lives. And so we have gone national. And one of the things that we learned from our first grant was that there's a lot of misunderstanding around medical assistance in dying. And people have a lot of questions and they wanna have an opportunity to talk and learn more about it. And so I knew of a great podcast that was reaching out into a wide myriad of homes and areas. And I thought, huh, you know, it's trending, this podcast thing. So we just have just started. Um, we have recorded our fourth episode. We haven't officially launched yet. Um, but I can tell you one of our very first interviews was with uh, Sandra Martin, who is the author of A Good Death, which is a book that was published um, just when uh, medical assistance in dying was legalized and kind of captures the historical movement of made in Canada. And she is a fabulous speaker and uh, an incredible story keeper. And so we have interviewed her. We've also interviewed a playwright, um, somebody who was doing um, a theater piece on MADE. We've interviewed a couple of people who've accompanied someone who used MADE. Um, and we're hoping to actually uh, speak with Senator Pamela Wallen um, in the next few weeks as well. So Kathy, why a podcast focused exclusively about medical assistance in dying, or in other countries it's called voluntary assisted death or physician assisted death? Why focus just on that? Well, and, and we've had this discussion, but I've said in, in the past, it's been legalized for Canadians. It's yeah. not up for me to decide whether or not Same. it should be. It's now Same. how do we build capacity so people make the right yeah. choice for them at the end of life? Yeah. And I think now more than ever with the expansion of track two and yeah. all the discussion that's happening on social media uh, around made, we need to make sure people understand how it works 
yeah. accessibility and mm. also to make sure that there is access to palliative care and yeah. good palliative care, whatever that looks like. And are you at all worried about the controversy surrounding this topic? I, I honestly think that in palliative care, we're doing ourselves a disservice by trying to divorce ourselves from Maine. Oh That's super cool. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the biggest misconceptions that are out there about made, because that's what brought you to this work, like people not truly being misinformed about it. So one of the big pieces for me, my own personal learning, and I don't know if this is like the public misconception, but one of the big pieces, being someone who is closely linked with palliative care and the field of palliative care and worked on a hospice unit for many, many years, um, I thought that palliative care and MAID were two entirely different things and never the twain shall meet. So when we first started our research, actually, we our first piece of research was with physicians in northwestern Ontario, because I was wondering, you know, what's going to happen? We have a challenge in terms of accessibility to a palliative approach to care here in the north. Um, what's going to happen when we introduce MAID? And so we interviewed physicians who, you know, we had really mixed uh, experiences, some who it linked incredibly well with the um, support and services that they were providing in their small communities. And sometimes people who were like just completely taken aback with this addition to the workload. This was early days in May. But they said, what you need to do is talk to those people who are actually engaging in it. So for me, one of the biggest learnings was that the majority of people that participated in our research had access to a palliative approach to care. Now, I get um, critiqued on that by people like, was it good palliative care? Was it really a palliative approach? Was it an interdisciplinary team? That I don't know at this point because we didn't ask that question at the onset. Um, that is, those are questions we're going to ask moving forward to really kind of begin to flesh that out. But for me, the biggest learning was is that people thought they had an they had access to a palliative approach to care, and their person still chose made at the end of life. Mm -hmm. So the corollary is that those people were not requesting made because they didn't have any access to palliative care, which was the fear when it was coming down the pipeline yeah. that uh, most palliative care specialists, our field, were worried that, um, uh, that, that people would opt for MAID because they didn't have access to palliative care or a palliative approach. And so they worried that if we put all this energy in MAID and not the same, if not more energy in raising the bar around access to a palliative approach that we would be continuing to chase our tail. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say that was one of my big worries too, uh, as someone working in a, in palliative care. And I was thinking, you know, to myself, I don't even think we have allowing natural death under control before we started mm -hmm. hastening death. Mm -hmm. And so how would that work? But I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like we've been doing those surveys and asking Canadians what they've wanted for, you know, basically mm -hmm. as long as I've been alive and people have been asking for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
in the group that we have interviewed in, in our, our small sample size in Ontario, most people had access to a palliative approach to care. Their person still wanted um, to have access to uh, medical assistance in dying and felt that it brought them quality. Not every family that we spoke with or members of the family all agreed or were on board with that, um, but people were very respectful of the individual's right to choose that at the end of their life. Kathy, you know what, um, in my years of practice, when I think back, you know, people were asking us to end their life since, you know, the time I graduated, it wasn't legal, of course, uh, but people asked for it, uh, however they did, like bring the pillow, the gun, the injection, whatever it was. Um, uh, you know, my reflection on my own practice about requests to hasten death is really not from people that weren't necessarily getting a palliative approach or palliative care. Most times it was because people were really feeling in the dark. Um, they were so scared and so fearful of this black hole that was ahead of them that they would rather pop off soon than experience the scary mystery of the future. And so it was people's inability to be shepherded into the future and painted a picture of what natural dying looks like, what it doesn't look like, um, having a sense of their natural timeline and their natural prognosis and what supports were available to them. Without all that information, again, it was like looking into a monster uh, at the, you know, as their illness was unfolding. And mm -hmm. so I would rather not see the monster under my bed. And so please put me out. <laughs> But I found that, you know, when I sat with people and helped untangle all of this for them, many of them said, well, I still might want it down the road, but I, I oh, I didn't know. Um, hmm, pause. Let me think about that a little bit. So, uh, you know, the lack of information coming to people so that they can truly make an informed decision by comparing what MAID looks like and what natural dying looks like is a little bit of a gap, a bigger than a little bit. I, I agree. And, and I think uh, we need both. I don't think it has to be uh, this or, um, but I think it's about increasing death literacy uh, for Canadians, but everybody around the world. Like we're getting more countries who are interested and are looking at some of the things Canada has done well around made and some of the things that are not going so well, I would say at this point. And so people are paying close attention. And I think when we have conversations, and that's one of the things I'm hoping our podcast will do as well, as I know yours does, is work to increase people's death literacy. And hopefully they'll hear different things, different stories, different perspectives of things that they haven't thought about um, that will help them to plan well for the end of their life. Yeah, well, call it dying literacy. <laughs> Yes, we had this chat. Yes, I know. <laughs> Death is the end. Dying is the process that we need to be preparing for and to think more around that so that we can make those good decisions. Yeah. yeah. So one of my follow ups to that is you kind of touched upon it in being from northern Ontario. You know, a lot of your research and even your thoughts about palliative care access are probably influenced by, you know, the, the ruralness and the geographic limitations. And so much of your research really champions, you know, marginalized populations, whether it's rural Ontarians or First Nations populations or the LGBT2S+. Like, why do we need to 
think about palliative care for these different populations? Because it's mm. not, you know, we often hear about it from big academic centers, urban centers, yeah. right? This idea of palliative care and, you know, the bells and whistles. But I bet you it looks different in, mm. you know, remote and rural areas, which is, you know, not just in Ontario, all over. So I'm just, I'd love to hear some of your perspectives of what you, why you, you know, spend research time and thoughts about that group. First off, I would say I love living in Northwestern Ontario. Uh, if you asked me this 20 years ago, I would have been like, there's no way. It's cold. There's nothing out here. You were literally in the middle of nowhere. And now I think it's the best place to be. I love the space. I do not love when it's minus 40 something bazillion and it's cold. However, we move through that. Um, and so because I think I, I feel so tightly in love with our geography, I want to make sure that people have the opportunity not just to live well, but to die well. And you're right, we often get forgotten. Um, I remember when we first moved here and the map of Ontario was not to scale. And I would be invited to meetings in Sudbury and people wouldn't necessarily understand why I couldn't be there that afternoon. It's a 12 hour drive from Thunder Bay, right? Like we, we know this a little bit better and I'm, I wish I was exaggerating and I'm not with that. But we also think of Thunder Bay as being in the middle of nowhere and Thunder Bay is kind of the gateway to Northern Ontario. There is a whole massive group of, not in terms of numbers, but geographical space up there that it belongs to Ontario that needs to have access to healthcare, that voices need to be heard. And so thinking about what's going on in our own home, I think should guide most researchers in the work that they do. So to me, it makes natural sense that that's what I'm paying attention to. And it's also my community. It's where I know people. It's where I have access to those stories and then hopefully can bring those forward to translate into some sort of research. Um, and we have lots of Indigenous people up here in the North that um, we get the privilege and I get the privilege of learning from and finding out different ways and viewpoints around end-of-life care. And Indigenous communities have been taking care of their own for centuries. And a lot of the things that I think you, Sammy, and I value in terms of conversations, in terms of knowledge, in terms of shared practice and love at the end of life has been exhibited in Indigenous cultures for way longer um, than we have been talking about that. So to see that happen and to see how we can, from a place of cultural humili humility, um, learn from that and enhance our understanding is so very important. Kathy, do you ever get um, frustrated or sort of burnt out trying to um, affect change at the end of life or, you know, in the final chapters of life, like this whole improving dying, improving death, improving, you know, um, do, you, do you ever try to hike upstream and try to change earlier on in the illness journey, thinking that just naturally there'll be this domino effect at the end? Um, I, I would say so. And, and I would say like you two, in terms of thinking about a book and thinking of using that kind of platform 
as a way of educating in a different way. So I started off educating healthcare providers, the healthcare providers of tomorrow even, and thinking that that would be a great way to start. And then at our center, the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health, we'd be out advertising this stuff and we would hear from people in the community, hello, uh, it's great that you're doing that for healthcare providers, but really I'm the person who's taking care of our person in their home for the majority of this time. What about us? And we're like, uh, there's nobody funding that. Um, I don't know what to do about that. And so then that's when we developed partnerships to be able to support some of that knowledge and share what we thought healthcare providers needed to know. And really everybody needs to know that. So I, I hope that the work that I get to participate in helps to front load some of that. I think we're getting better at paying attention to that. Um, and I have to say that helps to reduce my frustrations of the system. So yeah, there are times when I feel like I'm hitting my head against the wall. And I know many people working in end of life feel that way. But when you hear that something that you have been trying to share is resonating for people who are literally caring for the people in their homes, that's helps to make it feel worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us about your book. Oh, <laughs> I wrote this little book. Uh, it goes published in 2018. And it really was because of what I was just telling you about that we were invited in the community to do talks to different groups and people would be like, uh, how come you haven't written this in a book? And I was like, well, I didn't think anybody would want to hear about it. So I put it into a little book that was published by ECW Press. And it's called Talking About Death Won't Kill You, because that is really what I believe. And I, I know that. you <laughs> both do too, because we need to have those conversations. And to me, it was a conversation starter. Um, and it's been great to hear that people have used it to start their own conversations. Yeah, what was the personal motivation behind writing the book in the first place? Like, what was the what was the sort of the moment that led you to be like, this is too important to just, you know, leave on the desk? Well, I, I think it was probably when I became a patient myself. Um, I had gone from educating the healthcare providers of tomorrow about communication skills, about advanced care planning. And then when I was the person lying in the bed and I had to ask questions about treatments um, about, you know, my own potential end of life, I got shot down. Um, I, I knew enough because I had accompanied people who had died of, of cancer, the same kind of cancer that I had. And when I felt how hard it was to be denied the opportunity to have that conversation, but also as somebody who thought she talked about this kind of stuff pretty easily to be shot down was a harsh reality. And so I wanted to hopefully change that for people moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I read your book and I love it. And it is written in such clear language that it's poetic and beautiful and practical all at the same time. Oh, goodness. That's lovely of you to say. I have to say the having your own health problem, I felt gave me street cred, to be honest. Yeah. In a way that, you know, a PhD didn't, um, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Like it, unfortunately, changed sort of my ability to yeah understand things but also to speak about them Kathy a really personal question that you don't have to answer but you have children um yes. and so that adds a whole different layer one layer is to you know try to leech out of your healthcare providers an open dialogue about 
the possibilities in the future, the scary stuff. What, how'd you deal about that stuff with your children? It, it was hard. Um, I was better at talking to other people's kids about dying, death, loss, and grief than I was my own. Um, our children were pretty young at the time, um, in kindergarten and going into grade three. And they, we had lots of conversations. I got better as time moved on. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, one of the things that I did is I promised I wouldn't lie to the kids that mm -hmm. if they had questions, I would do my best to answer them. I wouldn't always mm -hmm. know the answer and they'd have to sit in that with us. Mm -hmm. um, so that was helpful. Um, it's interesting now as they are young adults and in university as they will bring some of that stuff and say, yeah, you're not as good at doing this kind of stuff as you think you are. Um, that's always really nice to hear. Mm -hmm. um, they also get a little bit embarrassed when they see their friends reading my book. I kind of love that. And yeah. um, their friends are like, hey, you've got to be good at talking about dying and death because look, your mom mm -hmm. wrote a book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're more comfortable than I was at their age and for mm -hmm. them and that also gives me hope it's the greatest title I love it <laughs> thanks I got asked a couple times do you think it's kind of edgy or like are you trying to get people and I was like it's not edgy it's just true, it's, true. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not going to kill you and it's going to be a lot more harmful if you don't have the conversations so, so when you were going on your book tour and going across the country and elsewhere talking about it what were some of the reactions to it? I mean, what did were you being welcomed upstream when you were trying to say, hey, dying mortality and you know, public health approaches are important? Or did you feel like you were hitting your head against a wall? Um, when I would be invited into community groups, people were incredibly welcoming. People want to have the conversations. They want to develop their own skills to have them. One of my favorite stories was a, a woman who came up to me uh, when I was doing a, a community talk, and she said that she was buying my book for all of her kids at Christmas, and the only thing she was asking was that they had conversations with her about it, and that was her Christmas gift, and I thought that was so brilliant, and so easy um so I would say for the most part it was it was welcomed um there are people who still don't want to talk about dying and death there are cultures that don't like to use the d words I'm really um clear with my language because I think that's important for little people but also for all ages that we are use clear language I fully respect some cultures including some of the people I get to share space with here in northwestern Ontario they like to use terms like journeying which fits well um, but generally the clear language I found was something that worked with me and for me and when you say you go out and you talk with communities give us a sample of what you talk about so I put together a, a talk that was called Talking About Death Won't Kill You. And so I would talk a little bit about how most Canadians think that these conversations are really important, but yet less than, I don't know what the latest stat is, was I think most of us talk about it with our lawyers more than we talk about it with our healthcare providers, which I think is fascinating on so many levels. And as Sammy, when we have the discussion about dying and death, people will 
more talk about what they want to happen after they're dead versus what should happen before they while they're living until they die. And so I would try and front load and push that conversation back and say that the things that you talk about before and what you want to happen until you die are the important conversations. Um, then we would talk a little bit around advanced care planning and some of the ways to stimulate that conversation. And I would make sure that it, people understood that advanced care planning is not about your will. It's not about your funeral arrangements. It's about what do you want to live as well as possible until you die. Yeah, no, that's those topics are so important and really should be offered at every local library. <laughs> And that's one of the things that we tried to do. And so I had the privilege of partnering with Compassionate Ottawa, and we put together book chats. Um, so there's a series of questions that guide going through our book, um, the book that I wrote in terms of stimulating the conversation so that they can be used in book clubs, they can be used in church groups, like any sort of group. And libraries have been incredibly uh, supportive around my book as well. I, I'm so old fashioned. I, I think about this idea of just cloning uh, people like you and putting you on park benches and with a sign saying, come talk to me. <laughs> you know how they have that for seniors, right? They have these benches where they put seniors sitting on them. Come talk to a seniors today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the, I would say that's one of the things that we've been working at. Here in Thunder Bay, we have those dialogues, which is in partnership with Hospice Northwest. And that was kind of our, our thinking around it. It's a chance for people who are in the community who have stuff they want to talk about around death, dying, loss, and grief. And so we would bring them together to have those conversations. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up grief because I also know you have done a lot of work with the Canadian Grief Alliance and have been talking about how grief and bereavement is a part of our thinking of how we can uh, live and die well, um, including for those who, you know, uh, who survive after someone, has, you know, dies. So can you tell us a little bit about the Canadian Grief Alliance and why grief is so important? Yeah, sure. I would love to. So I'm going to say this next little bit as a social worker who worked on a hospice unit that in palliative care, we haven't done grief really well. We tend to tack it on. If you think about those nice graphs that we have, we've got grief at the end, right? And I think we're getting a little bit better. I think people are becoming a little bit more grief literate in terms of understanding that it's not Kubler-Ross's five stages, that you need more than three days off of work, perhaps to engage in some of your own personal grief work. And then COVID hit. And so there were many people across the country uh, interested in improving how we were supporting Canadians who were grieving. And then when, with COVID hitting, recognizing that there was a lot of grief that was happening in so many different pockets and we didn't have the support systems. And so a group of us came together um, with the support of Canadian Virtual Hospice um, to think about what is it that we could do. And so we did try to do some of that upstream work in terms of education. We did a lot of webinars. We did a lot of talking about grief. Um, we did some challenging of the systems, particularly during COVID lockdowns when people weren't able to be at the bedside of people who were dying, people who were then grieving in isolation, not able to have some of those rituals. And so we tried to do some education and um, 
during that time, as I know both of you were working in different ways, and I worked with an MSW student who looked at developing a repository of some of the strategies that people were using um, when they weren't able to do some of the traditional grief rituals. And so the Canadian Grief Alliance has been advocating, we've been applying for funding, we've been trying to do education and trying really to make sure that grief stays on the radar of those people who are making decisions. You know what, I am guilty uh, of exactly that. Like in my entire career, I don't think I have appreciated how important um, attending to people's grief and opening the space for grief has been until honestly the, the last few years. Um, specifically, I am in awe of the power of anticipatory grief mm -hmm. and how important that whole phenomena is it we talk so much about hope and how important hope is and how hope evolves it needs to match the reality of where the person's at in their illness and move along as the illness moves along but same is for anticipatory grief is my understanding is really you can get quite stuck and not be able to harness the power of earlier grieving if we continue to pretend like everything is going to be okay or we keep people in the dark about their illness and we don't talk about the truth and reality of someone's illness changing over time the power of someone to be able to anticipate losses because they know what's ahead so that it protects them and they begin to grieve in small amounts over time instead of a whoosh, yes. you know, right at the end. It is really neglectful of someone like myself <laughs> not to, to um, you know, harness the power of what grief can do for people. The word grief sounds bad. It sounds like you'd want to avoid it. It sounds like it's something to run away from, but I don't know. Tell me if I'm, if I'm missing something here, Kathy, but shouldn't we lean into the power of anticipatory grief? I, I think so. I, I think we tend to be fearful of it because we think we're grieving too soon before the person has physically left us. And there's a, a quote out there, and I can't remember who it is. I want to say it's C.S. Lewis, who says that grief is the other side of love. And to me, I think grief is a physical response to love in many ways. And so what I'm hearing you say, Sammy, is the importance of recognizing that there's a lot of things that are lost throughout the trajectory of a person's illness before the person physically dies. And that I think as members of an interdisciplinary palliative care team or community members, friends and family, we need to acknowledge those little losses as they come across. And I'm just saying little because there can be so many of them and how that person attributes meaning to them will mean what kind of grief that they do. I think that it's also really important to recognize that no matter how much of the anticipatory grieving that people do, um, it can serve to prepare them in terms of educating them around some of the things that might work for them in terms of their own grief and what kind of supports they might need and what they might find helpful. Um, but when the person dies, when that bereavement grief kicks in, um, that preparation is helpful, but it is a still a new onslaught of grief, if we can say that. Yeah, yeah. 
And then I'm just continuing on that note, you know, there's the people that do so much of the work beforehand. Um, they do the bereaved grief part around, you know, after the death and then seem to pick up and function. And some people can get back into the swing of life sooner than other people uh, who may not appreciate they did a lot of the work before the person had died. Right. Yeah. So they can get a backlash like, oh, look at him. He's dating again. Or, you know, look at her going out for dinner, you know, <laughs> because people don't really appreciate the various colors and faces of grief um, and that and that the rhythm is very uniquely yeah. individual. And I think we have this idea that you attach grief to time and that there becomes a point where you're done your grief or you get over it. And we I think we have a deeper understanding that when somebody that we care about dies, you don't get over that. You figure out how to have a new relationship with that person when they're no longer physically present. And so what that relationship looks like will ebb and flow. Um, I use myself as an example. My best friend died when I was in high school, very suddenly of acute leukemia in a period of 11 days. And it was like, incredible. Um, I didn't know anything about grief at that point. Um, do I still grieve her today? Not actively, but do I miss her when big life events happen? Absolutely. Was I very sad that she wasn't around when I gave birth to my first child? Absolutely. Because we talked about that in, mm -hmm. as friends, and I would have loved to have had that experience with her. Mm -hmm. So you don't get over the death. You just figure out how to make that fit mm -hmm. into your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So changing topics a bit, I want to talk about your work with compassionate communities and your support for public health approaches and palliative care, because you've spoken at conferences about the power of community and hearing people's stories. Why is the public health approach and community so important as a part of a new way of dying? I think because of some of the things that we were talking about is that it's a proactive response to end of life. It recognizes that 100% of us are, are going to die, um, that our healthcare system can't keep up with what we require. And so we need to do some of that upstream work. And to me, a public health approach to palliative care doesn't look at preventing death. It recognizes that it will happen, but instead it does what we were talking about in terms of providing education, building capacity in communities um, so that not only can people know how to help, like if we think traditionally there was the casserole brigade when somebody got sick, right? And everybody comes with food and support and shovels the walk and walks the dog and takes care of the kids so that those who are closest linked to the person who is ill can support that person. We've moved a little bit away from some of that as we've you know been geographically dispersed we don't have the same kind of one could argue um family systems as we've had in the past but community is still there and so to recognize that it can be our workplace community that can support us in taking care of us um it can be our geographical communities it can also be our faith communities and so a public health approach looks at thinking about how do we build capacity in those different systems um, so that we can take care of each other and one of the things i appreciate about it is that it looks for people not us um, on this podcast it looks for those people who are now naturally caregivers. Um, it, for example, let's use a hairstylist. And I'm reminded of a, of a story that I heard here in town where 
um, a woman had a long-standing relationship with her hairstylist and she would go every month for, I don't know, look at me, uh, some sort of hair blowout. I don't speak hair. And um, she would go and the, the one time she didn't show up, her stylist knew enough about this woman to be able to figure out who to call in her family system. And the sad piece is, is that they found the woman she had had a uh, some sort of big physical attack and she was dead in her home. However, the hairstylist knew who to call to make that happen. So this woman wasn't at home by herself and found weeks later that they knew who the connections were, they could take care of each other. And they also came together as a community to support the family. And they put together this lovely package of memories for this person. It doesn't fix the fact that the woman died. She would have probably died anyhow, but the community was able to support each other in a non-traditional outside of the healthcare system approach. You know, it's so interesting because a theme that comes up, um, for me when I'm working and just thinking about <laughs> the work that we do is how powerful uh, trends, relationships, um, your spidey sense, <laughs> you know, uh, just, I think we don't appreciate uh, the things that we take for granted as we're walking around, doing our work, being outside, going grocery shopping. Like I know a certain rhythm to my surroundings, my community. Um, you know, I, I, I know if someone's walking in my neighborhood that I haven't seen that person before, or, you know, if I'm, if I'm walking and I don't see a particular person on their usual jog or walking their dog, they're now walking without a dog, like these things you don't, you don't realize you're paying attention to, uh, that suddenly when there is a change from baseline or a change in the trend or um, something different, that's when you realize that your life revolves around patterns and picking up on pattern change. I think we undervalue and underappreciate um, how important that sixth sense is yeah, especially when it comes to what you're talking about, this idea of um, being part of a community and and being perky to the things that might be triggers or red flags that mm -hmm. someone requires assistance or that we should lean in because that's a change in a pattern. Um, what do you say, Kathy, to people who don't realize they may have permission or not to do that? You know, and when does Nosy Parker or um, like in compassionate communities, how do you formalize permission for community members to, to participate in caring for other community members? So a great example came from one of my students. Um, her grandfather had dementia. He was still able to live at home, but you know, the family is beginning to see more and more kind of areas of concern. And uh, she had listened to, you know, a bunch of public health people talk about this, uh, getting out in the community and asking for help. And so I think it becomes asking for help and also knowing when to offer support. Mm -hmm. And so she was visiting with her grandfather and they made a bunch of cookies and they walked uh, 
to a couple of neighbors and knocked on the door and dropped off some cookies. And she left a card with her phone number and introduced her grandfather. They would chat and whatever. And mm -hmm. then they did this one Sunday afternoon, went out and met the neighbors. Next thing you know, all of a sudden there are kids playing in his front yard. He's got help with shoveling snow as winter came. Um, when he took a fall, the neighbors knew who to call. All this kind of thing was beginning to happen because they asked. And she mm. would tell you that it took a lot of guts to do and a lot of convincing her grandfather to go out and meet the neighbors. But mm. it was because they were giving and hoping to receive that this provided them with that opportunity to do that. Mm. Um, I don't know about you. I grew up in the 70s where we used to have block parent signs in the window. Do you remember yeah. this? Yeah. I remember walking to school and seeing those and knowing what houses yeah. looked like they could be safe places for me. So why can't we just shift that a little bit and think mm -hmm. about how is it that we're becoming more community oriented mm -hmm. again and taking mm -hmm. care of each other? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I am a house where you can ask me for assistance, like some kind yeah. of sign that would say, you know, I'm open to being helpful. <laughs> Yeah. And when you were saying paying attention to the trends and changes. Yeah. So um, when you asked, again, what kind of talks I do, I'm reminded of when I got invited to a faith community, they wanted to learn a bit about grief, because they were seeing in their church that people weren't accessing funeral homes in the way that they used to, that mm -hmm. people were coming um, to have a church service but weren't regular church goers and didn't know how to interact. And so they wanted their community to be there to support them and to be able to talk with people about grief and to be able to, you know, make sure that there was a box of Kleenex or to do some mm -hmm. follow-up to welcome people to feel mm -hmm. like this was a place that they could grieve in and honor somebody who had died. Yeah. It's almost like taking that um, vibe from the churches, like from the <laughs> faith groups and making it non-faith based as well. Right. Because yeah. My, my patients who belong to faith communities, it just not, it doesn't, it's not just natural, but it happens in their faith community. Like they're surrounded by people when things are down, um, yeah. whether it is the casserole brigade, which I love that term, or, you know, just friendly visitors or check-ins, et cetera, et cetera, or respite visits, um, yeah, it's taking that idea and saying you don't have to be part of a faith-based group to have that vibe going on in your community. Yeah, it can be a sports team. It can be a work community. It yeah. can be a volunteer group. Yeah. Kathy, you've been a supporter of the Waiting Room Revolution from the start, and we are so grateful. I know you share our vision for trying to go upstream and to do this dying literacy earlier. And I'm curious... Why are you so passionate about the waiting room revolution like we are? <laughs> and, and to me, it, the waiting room revolution, and this is something that um, when you when you ask about the public health approaches, I, I think we've tried really hard to get physicians to engage in advanced care planning. We've tried really hard for um different healthcare providers other than those in palliative care to be able to have good communication skills yeah. around dying, death, loss, and grief. Um, and I don't think we've moved that forward enough. Yeah. So yeah. I think empowering those people who are on the receiving end of care and mm. building their autonomy to yeah. be able to ask those questions. And that's one of the things that I was trying to do with my book is like to give yeah. people actual questions, ask mm. your physician this, you know? And so yeah. to me, the waiting room revolution is putting people in the driver's seat of their own healthcare. That we're hoping that this new kind of 
activated patient and family will light a fire under the healthcare system and they're going to have to start answering the questions that they themselves feel so uncomfortable inviting people that it, no one's going to wait for an invitation anymore. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. I want to end our interview with your view of the future. Are you hopeful for the future? Are you optimistic looking forward? Uh, I am. I am. And, and I think that might be one of the gifts of MADE is that we can talk about dying at a more macro level mm -hmm. than we were before. And um, I, I, we're seeing it in policy level. And I think I, I think that has been a benefit. I think um, I'm seeing in um, students in, in the university population, people being a lot more open around mm -hmm. talking about dying and death. Mm -hmm. I, the flip side of that is because we're living longer, many of them are entering healthcare with never having experienced the death of somebody before they're accompanying people. So then I think that changes mm -hmm. how we have to talk about dying and death, although COVID might have shifted some of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hopeful. Um, I Where I get discouraged is part of the, my motivation for writing the book was when I was a patient and I found it hard to talk to my healthcare providers and I do this for a living. Mm -hmm. And I still found when I was in the bed, how vulnerable you can feel when people aren't willing to go there with you and mm -hmm. have a conversation. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kathy. You rock. Likewise, you both rock. And I can't wait to read your book. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.